Good morning. This is Byline Mendocino. I am your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino is a local media roundtable where we take a moment every other week on Friday mornings at 9 o'clock to check in with our local journalists and explore the stories that they are working on. Today on Byline Mendocino, I have in the studio with me KZYX's own Sarah Reith of KZYX News. She's working on a special series about PG&E and their work throughout the county and throughout the region to clear underbrush, a.k.a forests and trees from beneath uh, power lines. She's got, she's been going out to different sites and talking with landowners and trying to put together a picture of what's happening along our power lines here in Mendocino County. And she's finding some pretty upsetting things. So we're going to talk with her about that series. It's an extraordinary series she's been doing for KZYX News, which you can find at kzyx.org. Little plug. Uh, in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Matthew Kane of the Willits Weekly, and we're going to do a straight-up media roundtable. Haven't gotten to do one of those in a while because I've been covering some other issues, climate, fire, and forestry. Uh, but I think it's good to just take a moment and just talk about the stories that are happening in our community and try to clarify them. There's a lot going on now. We'll see if we can. We'll see if we can uh, make some sense out of some of the stories that Matthew and Sarah are reporting on. But first, let me introduce our in-the-studio guest, Sarah Reith. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Great to be here. It's really nice to have you in person here in the Ukiah studio. Um, talk a little bit about your series, your PG&E series. I know it started out with kind of some some questions you were having and some sort of stories we were hearing from people, from neighbors, uh, but it's become something quite a bit more extensive. Yeah, I first heard about it back in June when Dolly Riley, who's the chair of the Redwood Valley Municipal Advisory Council, called me and said, hey, you know, it looks like the hillsides around Road A here in Redwood Valley have just been shaved. Like, what is going on? And so I went out there and it was kind of alarming it was just really steep slopes that were clear cut and um just right along the road road a off of highway 20 so i looked into it a little bit it turned out they didn't need a permit from the county they had a right of way it was a good 100 150 feet wide and um so i found out that that they had the right to do this it's a legal right it's part of the public um utility code as of 2018 and um so i got a forester out there estelle clifton who lives in redwood valley and she just described what she saw and um if you want we can play a little about a minute and a half clip of her describing what she's seeing as a forester and what she would have to do as a registered professional forester to create a timber harvest plan like this. And before we play that clip, I want to say that um, PG&E told me that their uh, qualified arborists had determined that this work was necessary and the right thing to do to protect the power lines and make sure that sparks didn't fly onto vegetation because they've gotten in a huge amount of trouble not necessarily for not maintaining the vegetation around their power lines, but for not maintaining their infrastructure in the first place. And now they're in huge trouble with the California Public Utilities Commission for not maintaining their power lines. And um, 
they have only been maintaining the vegetation in kind of low-risk areas, but of course this is a high-risk area, so they're kind of under the gun to maintain their infrastructure in high-risk areas. But they have arborists doing it, and there's a joke in here somewhere about arborists not seeing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things we've been hearing a lot about locally is an EIR, Environmental Impact Report, that was at the heart of the struggle around the cannabis ordinance and referendum. And we're looking at a massive amount of environmental impact. With exa- They're exempt because we're in this sort of disaster of, of fire and we've had the PSPSs, the power shutoffs, and PG&E has started catastrophic fires throughout the state with power lines that have sparked against vegetation and just set off, you know, enormous tragedies for communities across the region. Uh, but because we're in this kind of disaster moment, they can go forth without any environmental review. Yeah, they are exempt from any kind of environmental review, and they don't have to adhere to the, the California Forest Practice Act or any or practice rules or any of the regulations that are in place to make sure that that um that everything is being taken care of the way it's supposed to. So we'll just we'll just hear Estelle's professional assessment of what she's looking at in Redwood Valley back in June. Okay, so this is Estelle Clifton. Well, uh, from my experience working in forestry, the first thing I noticed was that the power line goes down a watercourse drainage area into a very steep canyon, probably portions of it are over 70% slopes, and then as it comes up over the ridge, it dives down, the the power line continues into another uh, watercourse drainage and goes right down the center of what would be a restorable class one or fish-bearing stream. You can see the moist vegetation there at the bottom, Um, but they have cleared all the way to the edge, and as it continues on to the substation. You know, in timber, we uh, when we see st- slopes this steep, um, or especially existing erosion scarps that could indicate active landslides, um, opining on geology is above uh, what the foresters are trained in. So we bring in a geologist, and if I want to harvest trees on a slide area, um, especially a clear cut on extreme sto- slopes, I will have an, uh, make my harvest plans around leaving a certain amount of vegetation generally to accommodate the fact that there's a potential unstable area. So when I look at this cleared area, I do see some erosion scarps in there and there is no cover left on them except for chips. And those chips are really problematic also. I contacted PG&E and was told that, well, you know, the stumps from the trees will maintain the this yeah, they'll provide erosion control basically, but the stumps of the trees are dead, so they will rot. It'll take a while, but they'll rot, and then there won't be anything. And chips take a long time to biodegrade. I mean, they're great for mulch if you're putting it around your shrubs and you want to conserve water, which is something we all want to do right now, but they're not really appropriate for providing erosion control on a slope. And I went to another site in Hopland. Uh, Catherine Cole's site, and she had had a giant, beautiful blue oak felled on her property. She was just in tears about it. And not only had this tree been felled, but it was cut up into huge rounds that she cannot further buck up into useful firewood, and 
these like four to six inches of chips were left in her pasture, which she uses to graze cattle. And now the pasture isn't viable or the, the pasture around the tree is not really viable and she can't rake it up. She can't remove the tree. She doesn't know what to do. So we've got um, Catherine Cole's uh, heartbreak and hassle that we can listen to here. And PG&E has left behind all of the huge logs. And the one thing that really upset me the day they were pulling out um, over here, I had a good oak tree, a very healthy tree. Um, it was at least 80 feet high up here. And I came home, not only did they take it down, but then they strewn it across all into this is, you know, I mow my fields in here. And now I have no way of moving this out of the field. What about all these chips down on the ground? Is that going to affect the grazing quality of this Abs property? Absolutely. I don't know what to do with the, the chipped area, whether I can, you know, break this out of here. You know, I mean, this is all I seed all in here. And did you know that they were going to come that day, or did you just come home and this had happened? We knew that they they said they were coming. They had marked some trees. We had some, you know, little scrub oaks and things like that. And we had all the dead from the fire, the river fire. And we thought, oh, well, they'll, they said they'd clean that out because that's a fire danger. But we were not... <laughs> notified that they were going to take down this oak without some kind of consideration for it. it. I mean, it took years and years for that oak to be there. All right, so we're hearing from a forester in Redwood Valley, a neighbor in Hopland. Yeah, those marks are really problematic. That particular tree had two blue dots on it, and I was told that two blue dots sometimes means removal. One blue dot means it's marked for trimming. There are a bunch of different marks, but those are not the marks that are established by by forestry. You know, if you're doing forestry according to regulations, you have to do strips around the stump and around the the tree itself. So when you take it down, regulators can come through and see if you adhered to your plan. But because this is exempt from any kind of plan, they don't really need to use the marks that have already been established by the trade. And uh, when I went next door to the Hopland Research and Extension Center, we saw trees that had been felled that had one blue dot on them. And so that's kind of a weird little bit of minutia there. But uh, right next door to Catherine Cole is a woman named Kellen Kaiser, whose property runs along Parsons Creek. And she is the owner of the cattle who graze on both of these women's properties. And um, all of the trees along the creek were marked with a blue dot, including this one that I just kind of fell in love with, which is this beautiful little oak that was growing right on the edge of the creek. And you approached it and the roots were all gnarled like a, a nervous system or something. And there were all kinds of little quail rustling around in it. And it's the middle of August and the tree is arched all the way across the creek, shading a little pond. And you could see all kinds of tracks of animals. Obviously, this pond was really an oasis for them and a shady space for the cows to lie down in. And um, Kellen Kaiser, the property owner, talked about how she and her mother had just basically gotten sick of having PG&E come onto their property. And uh, she made a great analogy to her work. Um, 
as a, a sex educator. We've got a Kellen Kaiser talking about consent. It's one of my favorite. Clips. Last year, they started doing significant amounts of work on the property and treating it very disrespectfully. So like leaving gates open that let my cows out, um, leaving gates closed between pastures that my cows were supposed to have access to, leaving messes in terms of like cutting wood and not cleaning up that wood. So me and my mother started kind of resisting their presence on the property and like calling people and complaining and locking gates and like basically just trying to keep them off of the property. Um, I'm a sex educator and so I teach about consent all the time and it seems to me that the concept of consent is like totally lost upon these people even though I've explained repeatedly like we are you know a group of women who would love to know the random strange men that are wandering around the property that concept even is lost upon them you know another concept that seems lost here uh, you mentioned a little tree a little oak along the creek that you fell in love with you can hear the emotion in Catherine's voice at the loss of this old oak from her field. You know, we're connected to our land and we love these areas and they matter to us. Um, and we're getting, ever since your uh, series started on KZYX, we're getting a lot of calls from people who are very distressed about what they're seeing happen uh, in their neighborhoods and in the forest along these power lines. Um, I wonder if there's anything anywhere for people to go. I mean, PG&E is kind of a classically huge and unresponsive corporation. It is privately owned, even though it provides a public service. Um, and I mean, what can people do about this? Well, it is really, really a lot of years long bureaucratic hassle. Um, I, for the first story, after I spoke with Estelle, I spoke with some women from the Sierra Club. Um, one of them is um, Dean Wetzel Chin, who's on the Fire Safe Council in Ukiah. And another woman is Nancy Macy, who is a member of the Valley Women's Club in Santa Cruz. And the county of Santa Cruz is kind of kind of punching above their weight a little bit here. But they, their board of supervisors and their county council have filed a suit against Santa Cruz, um, Cal Fire in Santa Cruz, which of course is a state agency, but there are different commanders everywhere, sent PG&E a notice of violation for practicing forestry without a license. That was last year for a, um, an upcoming story. I'd, I'd like to follow up with the Santa Cruz supervisor and the uh, Mark Stone, the assemblyman from that district to find out if that worked but they um they had been just on pg&e for years in advance so they had a little bit of a head start and when pg&e started tearing down trees in a little town they got together with their board of supervisors they insisted on community meetings they said you know we really need people to have the right to say no you don't get to do this we need to be able to bring in our own foresters and make an assessment because they were going to tear down all the trees right in a town so it wasn't quite as hidden as it is out here where you can kind of get away with despoiling the environment as much as you want basically um but they they are fighting it and they haven't had unmitigated success i would say um nancy macy has written some really stirring letters to um 
the CEO of PG&E. She's advising people to write letters to the chair of the California Public Utilities Commission, Marilyn Botcher. And um, these women were part of a group that wrote a white paper really analyzing PG&E's practices. And they wrote a 12-page cost-benefit assessment of PG&E's expenditures for vegetation management. And um, just to hit a few of the highlights here, they're saying that PG&E's proven that performing non-modernized enhanced vegetation management costs $494,000 a mile. And they're spending billions of dollars a year on a driver that only mitigates five fires out of 440 a year. Um, and I don't know how far I need to go into the weeds of this cost-benefit analysis, but they have compared PG&E to a couple of other California utilities, San Diego Gas and Electric and um, SoCal, Southern California Edison, which are upgrading um, their infrastructure. <laughs> Instead of uh, taking out their right. aggressions on the right. forest that happens to be around the infrastructure. Cut it all down. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let me reintroduce you real quick. Okay. This is Byline <laughs> Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales, your host. And today in the studio with me is Sarah Reith of KZYX Community News. She's working on a, a series about the basically ground-truthing PG&E's vegetation clearing program here in Mendocino County, but also across the region and uh, finding out that there's some pretty egregious things happening on the ground. And a lot of calls are coming in uh, with neighborhoods who are seeing this kind of rampant clear cutting underneath the power poles or power lines within our county and now beyond santa cruz i know you're looking up at humboldt county as well there's neighbors up there who are very concerned about this and pg e is going forth protecting their bottom line uh, but without any kind of environmental review and a whole lot of environmental concerns and of course this isn't happening in a vacuum just yesterday uh, governor newsom signed an enormous billions of dollars of package of uh, climate legislation, uh, and a lot of it deals with wildfires and the risk of wildfires and treatments to prevent wildfires in our forests. Um, and there's a lot of controversy about what is actually effective and what is damaging to forest ecosystems. So this isn't happening in a vacuum. There's a whole lot of conversation about this, and it sounds like the white paper addresses some of this. Is this even... Uh, necessary are these oak trees along the power lines on the creek on the creek that flammable are we really at risk well they didn't have to do any of the educated guessing that generally precedes this kind of project they didn't have to provide any evidence that this would be effective and these PG didn't right pg &E had did not need to prove that this was going to be effective and this cost benefit analysis which i think of as kind of an addendum to the white paper because it really goes into the numbers and feel free to rein me in if i <laughs> wander too far into the weeds here but um you know there's they're saying that that this um there's a 5% reduction in projection in ignitions by PG&E under this enhanced vegetation management plan. Well, let's let's slow down a little bit and translate that. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, maybe 25% of uh -huh. fires are started by vegetation, but they're claiming and they're they're supporting this by evidence from these two other utilities in Southern California that they've been able to reduce ignitions with equipment solutions. And the three that they 
keep hitting on are um, uh, replacing bare distribution cable with steel core, triple insulated conductor, installing computerized circuit breakers uh-huh. so that you can immediately know if there's arcing broken cable and shut it down, and installing spacer wire for significantly improved strength and safety at relatively lower cost. Okay, so um, making improvements to the responsiveness of the electricity flowing through the lines, according to these folks in Santa Cruz, is a much more cost-effective way of managing the risk of wildfire ignition from power lines than cutting down every tree that's anywhere near it. Right, especially when you consider that when you burn down a community, you get sued for multiple millions and millions of dollars several times a year. So, um, yeah, and they're saying that... um. You know that this this failure, this this vegetation, this enhanced vegetation management program, basically means that PG&E is going to have to keep relying on the power shutoffs, the so-called public safety power shutoffs, which were approved at the same time as this enhanced vegetation management program. So neither one of those is an infrastructure fix, and that's that's basically what needs to happen. And um, I I can you know provide. Um, I can send anybody who wants to this cost-benefit analysis if you don't want to go through the 12 pages with the charts and the graphs and the, the how many billions of dollars are um, are being spent on this project that is basically a fool's errand and kind of a temporary fix. And quite devastating to the people who, a lot of people who live here. Yeah, and do we have time for a couple more clips? We do. Um, I want to go back a little bit to Kellen Kaiser's um, comment about consent. And uh, I went to another landowner's place off of Ore Springs Road. He's right at the top of Greenfield Ranch. He's one of the few Greenfielders who's on the grid. And when I went and visited him in early August, he was saying, now I, I'm sorry that I have power because he's just got one little power line going through his property. And so we we can listen to Paul Putter and, and the meaning of consent. And we'll hear a lot of noise in the background because when I went there, they were actively chopping down hundreds of trees. Okay. This is Paul from Greenfield. PG&E has come through my property and cut, I don't know how many trees, uh, maybe a hundred trees. Some of them two and a half, three foot tan oaks, Douglas firs, hundred foot high trees all along their power line, but with some of them quite far away from their power line, maybe over 100 feet. I don't know. I haven't been out there with a tape measure. They came through and they marked a bunch of trees. They made me sign a paper that said that they were going to remove 32 trees. I think I might have signed something without really understanding what it, what the full implication of it was. It just didn't register what, what was going to happen. <laughs> That's really what it boils down to. Yeah. So even if you do consent, um, there's really no way of knowing what's going to happen. And, um, you know, Estelle Clifton's not the only forester who went out and looked at a site with me. I also went out to the Hopland Research and Extension Center, which has been the site of ag and forestry research since 1951. Like, these are really knowledgeable people. The director, John Bailey, spoke with the supervisor of the crew. He spent about 
12 to 15 hours over the course of three weeks talking with them and convincing them to trim some trees rather than cut them. And they were going to take out some young trees that were part of a research project. And he prevented that from happening. And he took the paperwork and the legal documents they gave him to their contract office. He consulted with another director of another center. He was really active and on site and being treated um, the most respectfully of any of the landowners or property managers I spoke with. And uh, he he was not really able to have that much of an impact. Like some of the trees they cut, they removed 90% of the tree, which is basically destroying it. And there was a tree that they based a few huge oaks, they just kind of cut in half. So those are going to fall down a hill at some point. And um, I also went to the same site with Mike Jones, who's the forestry advisor for Lake and Mendocino and Humboldt counties. He's a really knowledgeable guy. And he was looking at these trees on a small hilltop that was about a tenth of an acre where about 39, we count, we independently counted the exact same number of trees, 39 that had been removed. And he described it as a conversion from oak savanna to grassland, like the ecosystem in that spot has changed and the whole ecosystem has changed the habitat corridors have changed they have studies going on with migration patterns of coyotes and deer and they're going well we don't know how this is going to affect these animals behavior because now it's a rangeland instead of an oak savanna but he gave a really nice summary and i I think we've got um mike jones in there okay do we want to start with bailey and then go to jones well, I think we've got um got Bailey and and Kathy Monroe talking about invasive species that they think are probably going to come in. Okay, uh, we've got Bailey in a bind, Kathy and John Cascade. Yeah. Well, let's let's listen to Mike Jones. He's the forester from yeah HR. yeah. That's- okay. There's a huge surplus of biomass that we need to figure out how to manage. And so I'm not against thinning and removing fuels and removing vegetation and and reducing competition to facilitate regeneration and using prescribed fire to manage the forest. I'm very much open to this idea of reducing fuels and fire risk. But what PG&E and some areas that they deem are high risk are doing is conversion. It's really clear cut and conversion along these right of ways that create really significant ecological impacts on the continuity of forest structure, right? These are like little clear-cut strips that that hit right through habitat. And so th- when we're talking about reducing fuels for fire safety, one of the more aggressive approaches is like shaded fuel bricks. But, you know, you still leave a portion of the canopy there. These are basically, you know, denuded of all their vegetation right now. So it's pretty aggressive and, frankly, it's not sustainable. It's not... A, it's not ecologically or economically this is not a sustainable management approach for them all right that was mike jones of hopland research extension center yeah the question of sustainability the question of what we're doing here and the the long-term impacts of it uh, as we're kind of panicking because of the wildfire seasons that we've been experiencing uh what what does the future look like here well, he made a really good point. You know, you, we can tell that he's not squeamish about removing trees. You know, he's he's an academic forest advisor. He really knows he he really knows his material and he knows what he's looking at. But he also pointed out that you know, PG&E is basically um 
doing what we want them to do, which is providing us with pretty cheap energy wherever we want to live, which is often in areas where we don't have any business living. Um, We have not taken meaningful steps as a society to live in a fire adapted way. We're building houses and development kind of haphazardly and demanding that we have enough power that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want it, cheaply. And that's our priority. And PG&E has said, okay, that's your priority. We will serve, we will provide you with what you have demanded. And um, now we, we see what the, we see what the consequences are of what, what we want. And I, I think that this is a good time to play the, the Cascade clip and, um, and then segue into Matthew Kane because I could easily talk okay, forever and ever. Go ahead and do that <laughs> Cascade clip. All right, here we go. And then it's heartbreaking to see this cleared so much. But at the same time, for climate change, the big problem is fossil fuel use and we need our electricity so we can have electric cars and all kinds of other things. So it's one of those things where one problem solves, becomes multiplied. The reason the utilities are clearing this is because of wildfires, which I have personally experienced a few years ago. And so I understand that, but it seems like we have to do, be taking actions to counteract this action. We're just reaching a point where we've created so many uh, large-scale problems that the solutions themselves, whatever solutions we can come up with, create bad ecological impacts as well. We're just in this era where we're running out of good choices to make. Yeah, that is really impactful. And so you, you're doing this story, you're continuing to report on the PG&E clearing um what's next for the series and what do you think the larger implications are here i mean that's a pretty large implication that our society is completely out of whack with the the limits of the natural world yeah that's something we're gonna have to grapple with in the next couple weeks um but (laughs) what are you thinking as a reporter um i don't know anyone else no agencies uh who else is looking at the cumulative impact of what's happening in our communities around this clearing certainly a lot of people calling for this work to happen because of the danger that pg&e's delayed maintenance has put all of us in but yeah what what do we do here do we have no good choices well this weekend i'm going out to humboldt to talk to a landowner who is um got his neighborhood kind of um really resisting PG&E quite a bit and he's got a lot of academic work going on in his forest and I'm I'm going to find out what he's up to and see if our local Cal Fire folks are taking um, PG&E to task at all and um, and maybe explore some statewide implications and um, I guess just keep going until I get tired and drop dead. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and <laughs> okay um, and where can people find the stories they're on local news under local news at kzyx.org and also on the kzyx local news podcast that's right where they're all collected and you can just subscribe and listen to them one after the other and you can look at pictures yeah terrific well sarah wright kzyx news thank you we're going to keep you here in the studio we're going to have our roundtable with matthew kane from the will it's weekly when we come back i just got good news.
Mendocito. I am your host, Alicia Bales, live in the studio here at the MCOE campus in Ukiah slash Talmadge, California. You're listening to KZYX and KZYZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. And Byline Mendocino comes to you every, I think we're the second and fourth alternating, uh, second and fourth Fridays at 9 a.m. alternating with Bob Bushansky and politics a love story. Of course, in this age of sort of local news uh, contracting and being defunded and getting hollowed out, it's important to know who your local journalists are and follow local stories, more important than ever. Today we have in the studio Sarah Reith of KZYX News, and we also have on the Zoom Matthew Kane. He is a staff reporter for and photographer for the Willits Weekly. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Alicia. How are you? Good morning. We are going to go ahead and do a straight-ahead media local media roundtable for the rest of the show until 10 o'clock here. Um, and I just want to ask you both, what aside from the PG&E series that you're working on, Sarah, what are the stories that uh, you are following that you want to flag for listeners this week that you feel like people should be paying attention to? Well, um I've been working on uh, a story from uh, Willits Charter School about their Spirit Week, which is kind of kind of soft, but uh, it, it's uh, it's good. They're back. They're back to doing what they were doing before, and they're having a lot of fun and uh, being more cohesive as a unit. I'm also covering um, one of the local restaurants that's back in business, and we try to help promote. Uh, local merchants and businesses and uh, help them out. Yeah, you know, Ukiah High is having their homecoming week this week as well, and they're going to have their homecoming parade through Ukiah starting at 3.30 this afternoon. Um, you can find the, the route at the UUSD website. But it's been kind of emotional it's been moving i mean they like they're they're dancing and cheering their hearts out at their homecoming rally actually as we speak all together all masked and just kind of struggling and trying to be kids in this bizarre pandemic reality that they're growing up in so i i think those those school stories are are not just fluff they're kind of the heart of what's going on for our community right now that's that's uh, very true yeah i can't even imagine what this would have been like back in my day when I was in high school a million years ago. So it's got to be difficult for them. Yeah. And, I, and younger kids, you know, that grew up seeing everybody in masks all the time. What is that like for them? Right. They don't know any other reality. And kids are so tuned into faces, yeah. you know? Sarah, what about you? What are some of the stories that you're working on besides the PG&E series? Oh, um, 
Well, I'm I'm got this story with Harry Vaughn, the guy up in Humboldt, and um, the Board of Supervisors is having an update on the water hauling um, project from Ukiah to the town of Mendocino at their a special meeting on Monday, and I'm. I'm kind of coming down from all the coverage of the the cannabis referendum, which um, seems like it was an especially huge deal up in the third district where Matthew is. That's true. I, I don't really get into the news stories, unfortunately. I just do the uh, the features, which uh, which are fun and uh, get me around town and get me in places where nobody else gets to go. Yeah, well, the referendum has been a, a very, very big deal, along with the water stories. You're talking about the water hauling, uh, but there's also the, the Groundwater Sustainability Agency that we had a story on this morning that Sonia Warich, our RFA fellow, uh, reported on. So there's a lot going on with water, obviously the drought and Lake Mendocino. Um, how are you guys making sense of, of all of this stuff in a way that allows our readers and listeners to really get a grasp of what's what's happening well the drought has some really serious political implications as we just saw with the referendum um when i I was up in covalo actually on the 12th the day that the hopkins fire started and i was coming down the grade and just watching it grow and grow and grow and i thought wow everybody all over the county the drought and the wildfires are just tearing us to pieces but I, I was going around the county and talking to people about their thoughts on the referendum which was of course the effort to repeal the new cannabis ordinance and um and either have the board of supervisors just kind of nix it or put it on a special ballot which would have been expensive and the, the board of supervisors decided to go ahead and repeal it so it won't be coming before the voters but when i was in covalo you know, I, I developed a theory that the referendum didn't actually have that much to do with either the current ordinance or 10A17, which is now the current ordinance again. Um, people were not interested in the minutiae of the ordinances. Their eyes would just glaze over when you started talking about, yeah, but, you know, this new ordinance is going to involve 14 different regulatory agencies. It's going to be a huge amount of environmental review. There's not going to be any expansion unless your parcel, you know, kind of meets really stringent standards. So hardly anybody would even squeak in there. It just, just their eyes glazed over. They were just like, you know, we're sick to death of listening to minutia we don't care um what we care about is enforcement you know people are seeing hoop houses and industrial weed proliferating they hate it um they want to see enforcement and the drought is absolutely terrifying them people were talking about how there are artesian wells that have been just gushing gorgeous limitless amounts of water forever and ever just sputtering and coughing and choking and the um, trailer park in Covalo was reputed to have been out of water. I got some differing stories about that. Um, I, there was there was some fear that if people in the trailer park were seen talking to nosy strangers, they could suffer repercussions, and people were scared they were going to be evicted if they were talking about the water being out. Trailer parks are regulated by the state. The representative from Housing and Urban Development said that they had sent somebody over there and the water was not out. 
other people were saying it was out. The manager was saying it wasn't out. I called the owner and he was on the title, but said he should have been taken off the title. And the other owner, so, you know, it's a tough thing to track down. But the point is that everybody's absolutely terrified. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a hundred people in a trailer park with no water. The store's right there, so they can maybe probably buy drinking water. But mm-hmm. you hate to think about a hundred toilets going unflushed for days and days. Ooh, yeah, you do. Uh, and that's one of the things about being a reporter in a community and doing hyper local coverage is that you anywhere you telescope in or i guess microscope in but anywhere you go and and talk to people you know and try to find the truth of what's happening in their neighborhood uh, you get you find these pretty complex stories anytime you scratch the surface and matthew do you do you find that in willits as well working for the willits weekly are there stories that uh, from the outside people may uh, just think that it's you know kind of a simple s- situation, but when you scratch the surface, it gets a lot more complicated. Like, what's a Willits story that people might not know? Uh, you know, it's like peeling the onion. You yeah. start to dig in there, and uh, there's more and more deeper and deeper. You can go off in all these different directions. And uh, I agree with uh, Sarah. People just don't want the minutia. They just want the the bottom line of, of the stories and uh, things that affect them. I find that more and more these days that uh, people are more concerned with their own little world, you know, how things affect them rather than uh, the bigger picture of things. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example of a story in Willits that, uh, that the community is particularly interested in? Or is there something that you'd think people should really care about this, but it's crickets. No one, no one really is, is paying any attention. Well, I just did a story on the Judy Barry exhibit over at uh, the Mendocino Museum, and uh, so far I haven't heard anything from anybody on it. I, I really would like to get feedback and find out what people think about things, but mm-hmm. uh, they generally don't react to the stories here on the on the local level. Interesting. So you don't get emails or calls from people about your stories? I mean, I thought you're, the person you interviewed for that story was especially excellent. Excellent. <laughs> it, was it was going to be, be a five-minute interview, and it, it ended up me. being 45 minutes. Yeah, sorry about that. Sparked all kinds of imagination. <laughs> <laughs> was, was, it, was it Alicia, Matthew? Did you interview Alicia? I did. Yeah, actually, <laughs> what we do is we sit around interviewing each other. That's pretty much 90% of our, our day. Who else is here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. Um, It's interesting to think about who we're serving, right? And who is consuming the news that that we're producing and whether or not it's serving them and whether or not it's a value to them. Right. I feel like sometimes I'm I'm doing this in a vacuum. I want to. I want to hear back from people. I want to dialogue with them. How would you know, people? The only do chance that? I get to do that is when I'm actually interviewing them. Uh huh. And and what do you find out when you when you are face to face with folks? It's harder and harder these days during the pandemic. But you guys are both out there in the field. Well, yeah. Sarah, Sarah gets to do more in depth kind of things because she's on the radio. Uh, which I prefer writing because uh, I can uh, make mistakes and go back and erase it. I can when I'm yeah. not live. 
<laughs> That's true. Are you there in that uh, lunchroom? I am. I'm just behind the the partition. Yes, we're oh. masked and socially distanced. Wow. Aren't you guys in a, in a pod? Is a pod still a thing? Are people no. still doing pods? I don't know. No, we're not in a pod. The Delta kind of blew away all of the, all of that kind of stuff. We're just trying to stay as safe as possible. Even the six feet uh, is not really necessarily as effective uh, to pr- as a protection. But you know, do what you can. Stay away right. from people. <laughs> Keep your mask on. <laughs> that story is a moving target. Yeah. Every day you get something different. Yeah, and it's kind of swung into a a whole new place with the Delta variant. Uh, We're talking about the coronavirus story that you both have been covering for since the beginning of this in March of of 2020. Um, It's gone through all of these bizarre chapters as we had that first phase where we weren't quite sure what was going on and the official advice was to elbow bump rather than rather than um, shake hands or hug and you know there was dithering at all levels around whether or not we should mask and now we're certain we should mask and then the vaccinations began uh, in earnest in January and February of this year and and now we've sort of gone into this place where uh, it's it's as bad as it's ever been. The hospital is full. The death rates are are terrifying uh, for our community. We've you know getting um, at least a death a week, but many times three or four deaths a week from uh, elderly people who are vaccinated or uh, unvaccinated people. Uh, and we're sort of not sure how to proceed in terms of our local policy, um, state policies, and national policies so it's this really i think kind of disorienting place of to just be a human in a community trying to figure out what to do and and for me watching it all you start to get this sort of larger existential questions about it can our government help us (laughs) like can we problem solve when things are are big and bad because right coming down the road next is climate you know, and, and the fact that we're going to have to make some changes as a society, we're going to have to do it together. We're going to have to make these choices. And uh, it, I don't know. For me, it's just it's uh, I'm in a, in a rough patch with it. Do you guys have any comments about what that's been like to be so close to co- covering the pandemic, to watch all of these different phases as a journalist? Well, for a while, I was uh, covering a lot of stories of people coming back in business. And every time I did that, they'd go out of business again. They change the rules and they'd have to close up. But people expect the government to uh, solve all their problems in this area, and they just can't because, it's, like I said, it's a moving target. And they have their experts, but they keep finding new things, and you just have to find a point. At some point during the discussions, would you find something you believe? Yeah, I had a kind of a a crisis of conscience figuring out how to cover the deaths of the people who are fully vaccinated. Um, You know, I I saw that four out of the five deaths, they were were in their 90s or they had significant comorbidities. So, you know, they increased their chances as best they could, but they didn't, you know, they they didn't make it. And I, I... 
you know, you, you have to mention it, but I didn't want to throw fuel on the fire of the kind of anti-vax rage. And, um, you know, I, I finally settled on, on just giving it a couple of sentences just very straight ahead because really people who who create a lot of furor and conspiracy theories don't need information to make up their own right. stories you know it's it's not going to feed the fire they they already have so much that they they don't they make yeah they just make their own information and and then if you don't report it then then you can be accused of withholding information from them and then suddenly you're untrustworthy and the mainstream media is out to get you so right so that yeah there's so much bad news out there bad news outlets you know, I, I can't name any of them off off the top of my head, but uh, people get their news from all these little uh, outliers. Yeah, we we got a message from someone who is saying that that they get, um, you know, both sides of the vaccine debate on these right wing websites and news sources, and they were upset that that we weren't providing the full story. Why were we leaving it to them? And I thought, you know. If if you know that these news sources are providing you with with a lot of bad information, then that's a good time to dust off your information assessment skill set. Right. Yep. It seems like all all the news, liberal or, or conservative, have their own uh, bent that they're trying to push. They're not news anymore. Not straight news. They're disseminators of uh, the information that they want you to have. I want, yeah. I want to go back to the days of Walter Cronkite and check out <laughs> well, news yeah. out. Sure, sure. And we're in like along with the sort of the the melting away of the local journalism infrastructure, which of course, you know, study after study shows that people in their communities trust the local news more than any other news source if you can if you can believe that um mm -hmm. and in sometimes you hear people like you know really advocating for certain extremely um partisan news sources like almost cultish uh across the spectrum but people really do trust their local news uh even though local news is in a moment where it's where we're really struggling to survive and provide that very important service but the other thing is yeah the 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 landscape in terms of truth you know and and what what kind of disinformation is out there and why that's also a really really tricky landscape to navigate in as, as journalists and it's it's interesting to to make those choices about uh, what serves our community and what doesn't in terms of what we give airtime and ink to i wonder if we can sort of come back down to the to the hyper local because a lot of our local issues aren't partisan along those lines you know our local political races and people who represent us locally they may have their political preferences but these are nonpartisan um offices that that they hold and so it's really a lot couched in you know the culture of our place you know the the history and the, certainly we're not exempt from the political spectrum i mean there are people who lean right and lean left uh, and it's a useful um way to analyze people's political positions but it's not the predominant way you know especially when you look at the alliance that happened around the the cannabis referendum it was 
agriculture and environmentalists coming together, which historically here, if you followed the news, is not always the way things go. Um, so what's it like covering the hyperlocal? I mean, there's been a ton of politics in Willits, Matthew, around the city council, around the local police department, around even the existence of the city. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we have uh, Willits is kind of uh, it's either old hippies or uh, ranchers or agricultural people. We have conservatives, we have liberals, and they're very far apart. But I make it a point to get along with everybody. I try to listen to them and uh, I approach them as human beings to find out what is actually what they're actually thinking. Um, I know we're not going to change their minds. I've given up on that, but uh, it's good to hear people and report what they're what they're actually thinking, and maybe we can find something in the middle. And where can people find your reporting in the Willits Weekly? Uh, I usually have a couple stories a week there. Usually page three and then somewhere in the back. <laughs> Literally <laughs> page three. But how will we Literally. find the newspaper? It's actually printed. It's yeah, no, it's printed. actually printed. It's printed well. It's, it's the color is good yeah. and uh, the printing's good on it. Um, it comes out Thursdays. The uh, subscribers get it on Friday. Uh, they can come to the Willits uh, Farmer's Market on Thursday, and I'll pass it out until 4.30. Or you can find it in little boxes all over town. In Willits. In Willits. And in uh, Covalo, which is part of our territory that we rarely get up there, and Laytonville. All right. And, and Sarah, how can people follow your work with KZYX News? They can go to kzyx.org and check the local news column, or they can check out the KZYX News podcast. It also broadcasts. It also broadcasts. <laughs> You're on our little radio station. 7.45 and 8.45 in the morning and again at 6 p.m. And sometimes we have two stories a day. I think last week we did a pretty good job. I think we had three story, three days where we had two stories. So it's really looking up. All right. Well, this is this has been Byline Mendocino. I want to thank my local journalist guest, Sarah Wright of KZYX News and Matthew Kane of the Willits Weekly. And thank you also for your tireless work making sure that our community is informed about the issues that matter. Take care. And I'll be back with you in two weeks on Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. Don't forget, we are in our quiet drive here on KZYX, and you can uh, donate to keep this station on the air without all the hullabaloo of an actual pledge drive going on. And you can do that by going to kzyx.org and pressing the donate button in the upper right-hand corner or calling us at the station. We'd be happy to take your donation over the phone at 707-895-2324. Of course, KZYX is a listener-supported community radio station, and we depend on your support to keep us here on the air and keep the information flowing. So thanks again. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with you in two weeks. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. 
KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Woolets and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. 